wanting to say that I'm going to unlock all the truth and solve all the riddles of the book of Proverbs. But what I do want to do together with you is to open up the book and see what the Spirit will say to us. And I know that the first person in this room this morning that needs the wisdom of God and through the book of Proverbs is me. And so as I preach it and as I study it, I pray that perhaps you can pick up some of the crumbs that fall off the table in the sermons that I offer for you. But I I want to encourage you and I say that not for self-deprecation, but to say you have got to go to the table and feast on this book. Okay, you, you have got to go for yourself, Okay, not just on Sunday morning, but you need to open up this book and you need to swim in it for, for this month and really for the rest of your life and really go on the journey that the writers take you through this precious book. I have a feeling that you don't have all the answers to life. I have a feeling that you have some, some things that are perplexing you and challenging you in life today. I have a feeling that your character needs some work. And there's parts of your, your persona and parts of who you are that, that need to be refined and challenged and even convicted and repented of and corrected by the grace of God. This book is really the gospel of Christ for every believer. It is written to people like you and I. It is written for us in 20, for people you and I living in 2023. Listen, the primary audience of the book of Proverbs is a people who belong to the covenant of God. And so you, we of all people, should be able to discern the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and gain understanding even for the boots on the ground and the overalls that we wear every day in, in just the, the, the day to day, this book is what God has given us. He knows, he knows what you're going through right now. And he knows you need wisdom. Will you, will you listen to the wisdom of God. So let's read together in, in, our, uh, in our book together in Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1. And I'd like to read the entire chapter of Proverbs chapter 1 together with you this morning. The Proverbs of Solomon son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit. 
We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would not have any of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Thus says the word. Let's pray together. We're your sons and daughters, Father. We want to hear your instruction. Would you be so kind as to fulfill your promise that when we lend an ear, that you will, you will speak. We confess we are fools if you don't. For your wisdom is the only wisdom in all the world that will rescue us. Father, speak. By the means of the preaching of the word, by the means of the Spirit applying the word, speak. Father, speak. We will not be deaf. We will not be fools. For you will rescue us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me introduce myself. That's how the book of Proverbs begins. Looking back with me, if you notice, the first six verses really introduce what the book of Proverbs desires to do. And then climaxes in verse number seven with a thesis statement. That's how the wisdom book of Proverbs begins. And several questions come to us as we deal with this book. And we need to be tied together with how we read the Bible when we come to the book of Proverbs. 
We don't need to be forgetful or simpletons when it comes to reading a certain genre of Scripture. We're invited in, for example, as we had been in the book of Ruth, to understand that the book of Ruth is the genre of a historical narrative. It brings about some principles, but its chief aim is to tell the story, and then you are to derive the principles from your own conclusions. The book of Proverbs is, is in the genre we call a section of literature called the wisdom books. We have a different way in approaching the wisdom books than we do in the narrative of Ruth. For example, when we look at these men who are lying in wait for blood in chapter 1, we recognize it's not actual literal men. I mean, there could be somewhere, but it's really speaking in a figurative way, in a proverbial way. So let's not park our hermeneutics. Let's not park our, our brains at the door and read the book of Proverbs. Let's recognize a few principles as we go into this. And in this sermon, we're introducing the book. And, and really next week, Lord willing, we're going to introduce some more of the book and understanding more of the themes and breaking apart some more tools on how to understand the riddles of the Proverbs. There's a couple points this morning as we walk into this that we need to understand. That is, this, uh, let's answer one question here. Does the book of Proverbs overpromise? Do the Proverbs overpromise? You might be reading through this and, and feel like as you read some of these Proverbs, it just seems too good to be true. Does the, the, do the Proverbs overpromise? The principles applied in the book of Proverbs are not only probabilities, but they are in the very heart of God to bless us with. God does desire to do these things in our lives, these good things, these wonderful things, of leading us in paths of wisdom and making our, our marriages and our, and our life full of joy and integrity and honesty and, and making us into diligent workers and keeping our tongues pure that we're not liars and deceitful. God does desire for, for, to do all of these things. That's in his heart. At the very minimum, they are what the great God desires to do in us and through us. But what the Proverbs seem like, when they seem like a promise to us, when they seem like a promise to us, we can be discouraged thinking that when this Proverbs doesn't seem to actually work itself out, we can become a little discouraged and believe that the promise has failed. Even believe that God has failed. And we know that God hasn't failed, and yet we recognize this proverb stands true. And we're trying to hold to these things and recognize that in the real life situation, this proverb didn't live itself out. And so, did the proverb overpromise? One way to look at this is when it seems that following these principles, it's not brought about the desired results, is that one way to look at this is to recognize that God has something even greater than what seems to be the fulfillment of that promise. Now, you might need to consider that for about a week, what I just said, that there might be something in store for you greater than what this pr proverb seems to promise. But this is a blessing that the Apostle Paul understood when he said that the light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is, that when, when it seems like these things don't work out from our perspective, God is actually preparing us for the incomparable weight of glory that will be revealed in what appeared for the time to be an unfulfilled proverb or an unfulfilled promise. 
Again, you might need to consider that for a while. But when we study and know the character of God, we know that He keeps His end of the bargain. We know that He has never made a promise that He could not keep. And we know that He doesn't promise too much and under-deliver. He never has. No one who ever lived under the conditions of the Proverbs as perfectly as Jesus did. And yet, as we look at how Jesus would fulfill the very Proverbs... Okay, what was the end of his life like? And so God will not let us stray. He will complete the work that he began. According to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6, we have been, he has begun a good work and he will bring it to completion. And so we give ourselves to this end. We trust We fear and we honor God and knowing that our loving God will make sure one way or another that one day we will step into the fullness of all of the blessings that seem to be at our doorstep here in the book of Proverbs. There's an article that I'd like to send to you um, tomorrow morning and it's called Proverbs Aren't Promises that can further unpack this for you, especially when it comes to so often what is Troubling in our hearts as parents when we, when we uh, recognize that if we train up a child in the way he should go and when they get older, they will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6. And this article will help to bring some more enlightenment that I'm not able to in this time. But we put our hope in God. And we obey His principles and His commands. And we leave the results up to Him whether we see the outcome of what we have set out to accomplish or not. And let me say that again, because I'm not sure that we really endure. You might not have endured to the end of that really long sentence, but I'm not sure that we even endured to the end of that promise. That we obey God, even when we don't see the results. But also we recognize, not only is the, are the Proverbs not promises, but we also recognize Proverbs isn't about moralism. It's not about mere virtue or or mere character formation, although it has all of that included in it. That's what other wisdom literature is like that is written by philosophers and religionists. Moralism doesn't lead to life. It seems like it might. and It might seem like your neighbor who's living a moral life really is living it up, but moralism doesn't lead to life. It leads to Christlessness. That looks like legalism, self-righteousness, pharisaicalism, emptiness, godliness, and a host of other parts of vanity in life. You see, if we unpack the Proverbs from the starting point of responding to God rightly, as it begins in verse 7, if we unpack the Proverbs from from the starting point of responding to God rightly, we will be protected from moralism. Moralism appears at first to be easy. That is, to, you know, to take these truths and to just sort of live them out and, and we don't really need God. We, we can be a good person. We can improve ourselves. Moralism appears to be easy, but that's its facade. Moralism isn't just damning to the soul, but it's incredibly exhausting to live a moral life. It's incredibly hopeless and defeating to live out a moral life if that's how we approach Proverbs, is that this is a directory for moral living. 
One author says, Proverbs are not prescriptions for the American dream. They are prescriptions for how to live skillfully in a world created by the sovereign, generous, and fearsome master. And so Proverbs isn't a book that will tell you how to get your best life. It is written for those who are already living in the middle of it. It is for those who are already living in the kingdom of God. There's no shortcut into into living wisely and living rightly and righteously. It begins with a relationship with God. The rest of what flows from verse number 7 in all of the book of Proverbs is what is the outflow when we respond to God rightly in drawing near to Him and having a relationship with Him. The real intent of the book is to demonstrate that God has not left us alone but has rescued us by his word. He is willing to train us to know how to really live life and how to bear under the brokenness and fallenness of this world. Tomorrow morning, you're going to walk into the workplace and there's challenges that await you and unique relationships and complications and complexities, both in hierarchy and in peership, of those who you work with. God has given us Proverbs because He wants to rescue you. He knows your Monday morning. He knows you need wisdom. And He knows you're part of the problem. And He knows the world is just severely broken. So He speaks into this. And He's willing to train us. He's willing to train us on how to really live life and how to bear under the brokenness in the world. And in this book, he provides this training. You can just keep coming back again and again. Now, how do I do that again? How do I train my tongue? How do I discipline my mind? How do I treat my body? And how do I fear God? But God hasn't just said that we should be holy, but he graciously trains us on how to be holy. And this book is the practicalness of living life in Christ, in the brokenness of our sinfulness, and in a fallen world. In this book, he's given us samples of behavior. And he's helped us to not only evaluate if it is wisdom or folly, but to know how to make wisdom a part of our inner being and our inner character. To know how to to make wisdom a part of who we are, not just something that we do. How to take in wisdom and then how to act upon it. How to not just be winging it. And how many of you this past week sort of just made it up as you went. Even when there was a critical moment of decision making in a moral area or even an area that dealt with a a relationship that you felt deeply in love with. And you were just winging it. And so the Proverbs is the wisdom of God shared with us in a very down-to-earth way. If only God could teach me how to live. Well, He is. If only God could help me make a decision. If only God could help me see what's right and what's wrong in us. Well, he is. Do you want to know how to submit to the will of God? Do you want to know what it is to glorify God in your home, at work, at play, even at the table, or out in the streets, in the community? A wisdom is 
set in form like the Proverbs. It was a common feature in ancient cultures, pagan and Hebrew alike. So our book of Proverbs isn't the only book of Proverbs ever written in any culture. Actually, every significant world culture, the Egyptians, the the Medo-Persians, the Persians, uh, you know, all, all the different ancient cultures that were literature focused would write their own books of Proverbs. It was it was not something unique to Christianity or Judaism. It has been known throughout history and throughout empires. As a matter of fact, some of what you'll hear in the book of Proverbs might even be reflective of what might be found in, in other books. So whether it be Babylon or Egypt or a slew of other ancient cultures, this was a common feature. And in this book of Proverbs, we find generally that a form takes place. And when we look at the, when we read through the Proverbs together, and I invite you to do that as a church, that I would, I would invite you to consider these four principles, and maybe you want to make some sort of acronym out of them. I don't see one uh, right off the bat, but, but recognize that there is, a, there is a format given to this. Let's use an illustration here and turn over to Proverbs chapter 4 and verses 1 through 9. And it's also up on the screen. And in this, in this is, is four parts of a pattern in which the writer of Proverbs generally conveys wisdom. At the beginning, he, he, he appeals to you once again. How many times have I told you this? But in a positive tone, he's saying this. And often we find ourselves, even as, as, as parents, for example, we're saying to our children, hey, you need to listen to me. Listen, I'm, I'm going to share something too, but I, I need your attention first. And so, first of all, the, the writer of Proverbs gives an appeal. It's a relational appeal, but it's a strong appeal. And so, it's a summons to listen, and then followed by an admonition. Let me tell you, you really need to hear this. And then following by that is because there's a motivation for this. So you need to understand what's, what's driving at this, and then you need to understand what's, what's the reward or the consequence of listening to this. And so, follow along, and you can follow along on the screen here, firstly. But here, O son, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. And so we see here a summons to listen. A son listened what I have to say. It's a summons to listen. By the way, this can be even helpful in your devotional time to even take that moment and in this, in this summons to listen, just say, Lord, yes, this is me, Lord. This is, I, I'm pausing right here before I read the rest of the, of the proverb. Lord, I, I want to be attentive. I need your insight. Mine has failed. I only see what I want to see. But I need, I need to see what you want me to see because I'm blind to my own blind spots. So Lord, yes, please. Give me good precepts. And, and help me not to forsake your teaching. And so, so let this shape your prayer, praying the Bible. Then he continues on into the admonition. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, and do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. And do not forsake her. and She will keep you. And here that we see this admonition, this exhortation, this encouragement. Hey, listen, you need to get into this. You need to understand the importance of this. This is vital. I'm drawing your attention to this. You need to stop where you are and recognize that God is sovereignly delivering to you wisdom in this moment because He knows what the next moment contains. 
Yes, I believe that God does even sovereignly work in our hearts through themes and, and truths and principles. This is ironically, I think, by the way, as we would think about the setup of Proverbs and we look at it, we say, why isn't there just a whole chapter on, on work ethic? And why isn't there a whole chapter on, on relationships and a whole chapter on time? Why does it just skip back and forth between all these topics? Well, let me ask you something. Is your life neatly categorized? Your daily interactions all nice, neat, in little categories? Or do you have a problem with your tongue at one moment and your thought in another moment and your money in another moment and your appetites in another moment and, and so on? And so it's almost like Proverbs is written as it's a reflective of our lifestyle and the rhythms of even our moment-to-moment living. And so take it as that. Even when you say, oh man, there's a topic and a subject here or there and just well, that verse against that verse, I just feel like I got a little bit of whiplash because the topic changed so quickly. Hey, hey, that's how life is. Take it in, let God simmer it into your heart, cook it in your heart, and recognize, hey, there might be something that begins to emphasize itself more in this moment than another, but recognize that God is actually kind and saying, hey, you know, you're scatterbrained, and here's some scattered truth that applies to every loose end of your thoughts. And here's some wisdom, because I know how you think. And you think you think in categories. And you think you think in nice, neat columns. And you live your life in these nice little chapters. But you don't. You're struggling with ten things at once. It isn't just one thing. So I'm just going to give you a bunch of wisdom. And the Spirit of God might take some and highlight that for the moment. And you come back to it and recognize there's some others that He highlights at a different moment. But God is wise and He's sovereign even in the... the um, the order of how we read the book of Proverbs. Well, I digress, but we, let, we notice the motivation for obeying and then we notice the consequences for obeying. We're beginning verse number 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. By the way, we saw that in Chapter 1 as well. Repeating. We're going to find also through the book of Proverbs, it's a repeating truth. And just like, I needed to hear that again. I needed that reminder. I needed that to go a little further. And I needed that to be connected to another truth in a different way. And I needed that in, that, in the timing of, of, and I needed that today. Uh, last week I needed that truth then, and I need it again today. And so, so we see there's a consequence for obeying or, or not obeying. We recognize that as the book begins, it says that Solomon had written the book. Actually, he didn't write the entire book. There's many other authors, and we'll get to that at a later time. But he wrote much of Proverbs, but not all. There are many other contributors, and the book wasn't finished for hundreds of years, actually. It was an unfinished book. It's worth making a big deal about that God is not an afterthought in the Hebrew Proverbs. This is what does set the book of Proverbs apart from all the rest of the cultures, of the ancient cultures who wrote Proverbs. That God is not an afterthought. He's right at the beginning. And the way to engage the Proverbs is to open, to walk through the door, really, of a relationship with God, to fear the Lord. And so, chapter 1 is, is really a gateway to the rest of the Proverbs. You enter into the Proverbs by knowing God for yourself. And by the way, if, if you're trying to live life without God, you, 
you really are described in this book, and you can find yourself described over and over again in this book by a gracious description called a fool. And it isn't God just calling you by name-calling and trying to offend you to hurt your feelings, but He's actually gracious and merciful to reveal to you, you don't have to remain a fool. He has rescue for you. You can be wise. And so He is not taunting you. He's not mocking you. He's saying, listen, if you persist in that way, you will get what you want. It will not be me or my blessings. But you can turn. And so the whole book of Proverbs really is a gospel written to the fool in saying, wake up. You are a fool if you think you can live without me. And you're a fool if you think, think you could be a good person without me. And so in Hebrew literature, amongst all the other types of Proverbs, we think of the little Proverbs that come in our fortune cookies, right? God isn't even a thought, an afterthought in that. This is what makes it so unique and special to us as the children of God, is that it is, it is right out in the front. God is the way in which we enter into this Proverbs. He is at the front and center. And at every point of wisdom is meant to flow from having a relationship with Him. The relationship that one is meant to have with God and acted upon by proverbial wisdom is that of a covenant relationship. It's no casual relationship or even a religionist relationship. It's a genuine blood-bought covenant-bound relationship where God is God and the reader is his own born-again child. You are the son of this. And so he... And so he includes... We see some religious, some religious activity. We'll find in the book of Proverbs, we'll find mention of prayer. We'll, we'll find sacrifice. We'll find revelation of God. We'll even find moral absolutes. That is, truth is truth no matter, no matter what. But in these and other characteristics of a worshiper, we see a genuine heart of devotion that is a result of being known by God. But what we don't find in the Proverbs despite the inclusion of these type of things, these religious activities, if you will, is a Pauline epistle charging people to go to church. We don't find that in here. Go to church to find, to find wisdom. Go to church to find worship. Go to church to do the prayers and to offer the sacrifices. But if we could say it, this, this is more of what I can do when I leave church and live on the streets type of instruction. It's just very, very practical. This is even more practical than we can think. Because in following God's wisdom, we find an avenue of God's grace poured into our heart and home. The Proverbs, if you will, are a means of grace. Meaning that they are a way in which they give us the knowledge to know how to obey God, and God fills it with grace. The Proverbs aren't an alternative to grace. That is, if I can just plow through, if I can just accomplish this, who needs God? I mean, I can can be honest, I can control my tongue, I can control my eyes and my appetites and my desires, and I can work hard. The Proverbs aren't an alternative to grace. As if they were merely moralistic. One can follow the wisdom of Proverbs and, and become a very successful and potentially a very good person. 
But what they will miss is that they will miss the grace of God. They will be graceless without the covenant bonds of grace. And so the book of Proverbs imparts to us what the ways of God are like. How does God move? How does God think? And how does he, how does he want me to live since he purchased me and owns me and calls me his? And in Proverbs 1.7, we begin to learn the ways of God, firstly, by our submission to him. When we behold his majesty and glory and offer ourselves in response to his authority by humble obedience, we've arrived at a place where we can receive instruction. And so this morning, the remainder of the time, we're going to be looking at verse 7, and the question remains, can you read the rest of Proverbs? Or do you need to stop at 1-7 and honestly, like I did the past couple of weeks, and just say, I am devastated by verse 7. I need to fear the Lord. So we're going to look at it very proverbially, very simply, into two points this morning. First things first. When we look at verse number 7, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. And we recognize that the beginning has a, a certain uh, location setting on it. It, it, it. We wonder, is that a where? Where do I begin with wisdom? Where do I begin with knowledge? Where do I begin with understanding and instruction? I, where do I begin? Do I begin with God? Is it a where? The Hebrew word for beginning is somewhat actually really broad. It's, it's just ambiguous. It, it means in general that the idea of, that it's the best thing, or, or you would say the first thing. And it really is that simple. Listen, Christianity really is this simple. Fear the Lord. If you make it any more complicated than that, it's not Christianity. It's some sort of religion. It's some sort of tradition. It's some sort of philosophy. It's some sort of scheme, but it's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is simplistic. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And that word beginning is ambiguous, as I mentioned, and that ambiguity of what that means is, is it aware, is intentional. It's likely that the word picture that helps to frame that idea is that if you were at the beginning of a journey, you wouldn't want to start anywhere else than from the point of fearing the Lord. You wouldn't want to start life, you wouldn't want to start any chapter of life any decision, either in the microcosm of the moment or in the macro narrative of your greater life or even of what God is doing in the world, than any other point than, than living, beginning to live in the fear of the Lord. So we do begin in a where. Where do I begin my journey? Where do I begin to truly live? Where do I begin to live like no one else? I begin to live 
in the fear of the Lord. If I have skipped over the fear of the Lord and I have substituted it with busyness of service, if I have skipped over the fear of the Lord and substituted it with, with, with other idols, if I have skipped over the fear of the Lord and substituted it with my self-righteousness and, and, uh, and really um, self-promotion and self-glory and believing, placating my own uh, convicting thoughts with my own goodness that I've been immoral and I'm not that bad of a person, if I begin anywhere else, listen, it all hinges on where you begin. And the writer of Proverbs says, don't begin anywhere else living than the fear of the Lord. Because where you begin does affect where you're going. And so of all the people and all the possible journeys that all the people can be on, the beginning of the only journey that counts for anything is at the fear of the Lord. Where is it? It's at the beginning. Begin with fear of the Lord. So it's the beginning. But we also recognize this word is ambiguous and it also contains the weight of, of knowing it is the best thing. It is in a superlative way, an incomparable way. There's nothing like it. It is the best thing. What keeps us in wisdom as we are on the journey? We've started the journey in fearing the Lord, but what keeps us in the wisdom? And, and maybe you've walked with the Lord for quite a while and, and you find yourself fraught with discouragement and, and really your own folly. What keeps us in the wisdom is not our experience. What keeps us in wisdom is not good intentions and, and good routines and good traditions. But what keeps us in the wisdom, no matter how long we've been on this journey, is our fear of the Lord. And my prayer and for Providence and for every one of us sitting here is that when all of us enter into the gates of heaven, that we will have walked a long way, not in wisdom, but in the fear of the Lord. Because we know, and, we, and I know, I know people who are old, who are Christians, who have, are not walking in the fear of the Lord. And it's sad. You would think that their age, but it doesn't. Your age, my age, it does not relate to whether or not we're fearing the Lord. We need to fear the Lord today. And it's the best thing. And so it's fearing the Lord is not only the beginning of the journey, but it's what, what keeps us in wisdom on the journey. It's not okay that you walked with the Lord a year ago and today you're not. Today, fear the Lord. It won't be about what you can do. It will be more about how you can do it. And so the whole book is a lot of what you can do, but it begins by saying, you must do it in this way, in a God-fearing way. How do you live your life before the Lord? So why do we need wisdom? We need wisdom because we're perplexed. We're confused. We're discouraged. Wondering. We need wisdom because we need counsel. And there's really not an area of our life where we don't need the truth of God. Whether it's in our emotional 
life, whether it's in our relational life, whether it's in our financial life, whether it's in our, our moral living, whether it's in our relational living, whether it's in, in, all, in every area of our life, we are in desperate need of God's wisdom. So in every area of our life, we be, must begin that area of life living in the fear of the Lord in my, in my emotions, in my thinking, living in the fear of the Lord in my, in my tongue, living in the fear of the Lord in my thoughts, living in, in the fear of the Lord in my wallet. We need the fear of the Lord in all those areas because we, we, we need wisdom in those areas too. And so first things first, and then secondly, loving fear. Loving fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We began with first things first, with the beginning. Now let's talk about loving fear. Now that's a funny combination of words because... In one sense, uh, a lot of us don't actually love fear. Perhaps we might watch a scary movie, or maybe you might have gone to a haunted house in order to enjoy the entertainment of fear. But the fact is that true, true, deep, deep seat of fear, we, we do not love. So what is this fear, and, and what does it have to do with love? Is there any love in verse 7? In Deuteronomy 10:12, when God was meeting with his people and giving them their constitution, really really the, the scriptures and, and his will for their lives as, as he would make his covenant known with his beloved people Israel. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, God met with them at Sinai and, and, and listen to what, uh, what it's like to, to live life with the Lord according to God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. Okay, we can check that off. We know we need to fear the Lord. To walk in all His ways. Oh, that reminds me a little bit of Proverbs, maybe. But thirdly, to love Him. And so I think there's a, there's a, a definition of fear that I think needs to go a step further than reverential awe that a lot of us have, have ascribed to when we come to the fear. I'd like to, to just take it a step further and, and regard it as this. It is an adoring fascination with trembling regarding His holiness and power. It is an adoring fascination. It, it does have love. Notice in Deuteronomy 10.12, let me read that again. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice that fear and love are not only in the same command, but fear and love are in the same sentence. I mean, they're right there. Fear me and love me. When you submit to God in fear and love, you begin to understand what life is all about. That's the beginning. You haven't even begun life if you don't love and fear God. You haven't. You're, you're living in death. That's an oxymoron. But you're dying. Don't let any of the, the signs of life fool you. Biblically, 
with sovereign wisdom, God says to you, if you have not come to God and received him out of love and fear and what he has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, you are not living Because loving and fearing God is the beginning. And it's actually the middle and the end, too. We never stop. It doesn't mean that we begin having wisdom by firstly fearing God, but that in the beginning, in the beginning is, is our whole life is lived out in wisdom. And so how do we How do we conclude this? How do we understand this this morning? We understand this in in this way. The instruction that accompanies wisdom mentioned in verse number 2. Notice in verse number 2 of Proverbs 1. To receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. The instruction that accompanies wisdom in verses 2 and 3 is dependent upon being a genuine disciple of God. It is a warning that this is not an altruistic study of virtue. The word instruction that's used here is a really peculiar and particular word that's used. It is not a physical type of persuasion, but it is an appeal to the conscience. It isn't a term that you would use to talk about such things in the workplace, for example, as like an internship or an apprenticeship. That's not what God is saying that he wants to do with you, although that can be seen as he trains us. But this word is not used as an idea of an internship or apprenticeship. It isn't even the idea of training for the Olympics or a physical task or activity of instruction. It is a word meant to relate very closely to the pleading with the inner man. It isn't an external instruction. It is meant to go laser-like, piercingly into the very heart of hearts of your conscience, of your soul, of your heart, of your inner being, of your inner man. This instruction. A call to the very core of one's being. So God says, no masks allowed. No pretense welcome. No mere outward conformity. No behavior bending. That's not what this book is going to be about. It is instruction that only those who are hidden in the embrace of the covenant with God can truly know, perceive, understand, and follow through through on. This was a book written to God's children. And only God's children can truly live this book. And so the instruction builds in verses 1 through 6 until it comes to verse 7 and fireworks go off on verse 7. And verse 7 is the key statement, it's the theme statement for the rest of the book. It might even be good as you read every day, even though you'll see reiterations of this, come back to verse 7, read 7, and then read your next chapter. And let it be your prayer. And so we see the thesis for the entire book. Here we see the purpose of the book, the premise. 
And what we are left to do this morning, fear the Lord. Let's pray.